So welcome to the CFITrainer.net podcast. We've got something new and pretty interesting for you today. A closer look at the role of metallurgical and material science in fire origin and cause determination. Our guide into this world is Larry Hankey. Larry Hankey of Materials Evaluation and Engineering Incorporated is a registered professional metallurgical and materials engineer with over 40 years of experience in failure analysis, materials characterization, product evaluation, and research and development. He specializes in engineering evaluation of failures in metallic and non-metallic material by deformation, fracture, corrosion, and wear. Larry is skilled in a wide variety of materials evaluation laboratory methods and instruments. He has testified as an expert witness many times, contributed to numerous scientific publications, and held multiple leadership positions at ASM International and other professional associations. Larry, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you very much. So I'm going to start out real basic. Uh, we've never done this before on CFI Trainer. Uh, so, you know, I'd like to start out uh, just having you tell us about what material science is and what is metallurgical science. Okay. Material science in, in is, is a general term and a general field, and that's involved with the science of materials and what they're made of and what properties they have. So metallurgy then is a subset of that, and that's a focus on, on metallic materials. So steels or copper, um, copper being very important in, in the world of fire and electricity, steel yeah. being more, more popular in other, other fields for structural materials. Yeah, I get how copper could uh, affect us greatly. So um, tell me a little bit about how metallurgy and material science is used in fire investigation. First of all, in many fire investigations, they are complex, and we have multiple failed components. And so part of what I do is figure out what has failed and why it's failed. So what is the mechanism that has caused that component to fail? Did it corrode? Does that put, did that put a hole in it or did it break because of stress? And by figuring that out and whether it's a single stress or a multiple stress applications can be important to understanding why a, a particular component has failed. So when do you typically get involved in a case? In a fire case, I'll get involved after the usually after the initial investigation so they'll be the fire investigator the origin and cause person has been on the scene and has picked out an area that's important and component components that are have been involved in the fire and realize that he needs to know more about those things he or she i should say okay so what can the examination of these metals and materials tell the fire investigator? Like what, what types of questions are you asked to examine? The basic things that I can, I can tell is if it's failed, how it's failed, or if it's damaged, what the damage mechanism is. So if I look at something that has a hole in it, if it's a gas line, for example, that has a hole in it, is that hole a mechanical damage or is it a fracture or is it corrosion? You know, what's caused the uh, perforation? that uh, has let the gas leak out. I also get involved many times in looking at things that are from the fire scene and looking at damage that has resulted in 
alteration of the, the components somehow. So I can, I can look at things and figure out whether it's caused by the damage has been caused by the fire or whether it's been electrical arc that might have initiated the fire. All right. So I'm wondering, just thinking about you getting involved in the case um, and wanting to make sure that others are aware how to get someone like you involved, who else gives you a call? I'm thinking sometimes it might not be just the fire investigator. No, it's some, sometimes it is. I mean, there are certain fire investigators that know me that will call me when they get into a scene and figure out to figure out what they should be saving and what we can do with that. But most of the time I'm getting called by either the insurance company that covers the property or the insurance company that uh, is defending what is uh, being blamed as the cause of the fire. So normally I get hired by either the insurance company or a law firm that's that's representing the insurance company. Okay. So what's a typical day look like for you? What kind of things do you do as an engineer? A typical day for me is probably not going to be involving a fire uh, investigation. Uh, So we look at all sorts of broken things and do all sorts of consulting for manufacturers of different products. So I may be looking at a medical device one day, a car the next day, and then artifacts from a fire scene the following day. And so that may be just looking at them, making measurements of a part or doing research on the material that the, the part's made out of, or it could be, I could be in the laboratory doing something, taking pictures with a microscope, uh, either a light microscope or a scanning electron microscope or uh, analyzing the microstructure of a metal, for example. That's very key to the work that we do here. Basically, just looking at the part and characterizing the damage and trying to figure out what, what has caused that damage to get that back to the root to, to the root cause of the incident. So what's it like in your lab? I mean, give, describe it to me. It's pretty clean. A lot of our work for the industrial part of it is for medical device companies. So it's very important that we keep the laboratory clean and have areas that we can put things that we know that they're not going to be contaminated. And so that, that that's important for fire investigation as well. Although at the end of the day, if we're doing a fire investigation, at the end of the day, the laboratory isn't nearly as clean as it was in the morning. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's going to be the end of the day is going to be cleaning up the laboratory to make it available for the next day. But we'll start off usually with a visual exam of the components that are at the issue and gradually work our way up in magnification and, and, and different levels of destructive evaluation. So at first, we'll probably uh, look at a part, take some measurements, take photographs with a regular uh, digital camera, you know, a single lens reflex camera, probably. Uh, And then we would look at it at higher and higher magnification. So we'll start off with a stereo microscope and we'll take uh, photographs with a stereo microscope. And eventually we'll decide which parts of that component need to be uh, more closely evaluated. And so we'll make uh, drawings and sketches uh, with marks on them to show where it's going to be cut and cut out different pieces to look at in a scanned electron microscope, for example, or to do microstructural evaluation of that part. 
Okay. So let's say you get done with a portion of, or, or let's say you're done with a specific fire investigation. What should the fire investigator expect from a materials examination report? For the written report, it would be a more detailed, but obviously we're available for uh, more informal uh, consultations before the written report is done. So at the end of the day, we'll sit down with a fire investigator and describe what we've done, what we've seen, what the significance of those features are, and how they could re be related to the fire. And, and then ask, answer, excuse me, answer any questions that the investigator has, specific questions that he may have regarding the artifacts uh, at, at issue. Okay. Um, but in the end, what we'll really be able to, to do, what's really important is going to be say, you know, what's the component? What's it made out of? How is that material going to behave in a normal manner? How did it behave? Was it affected by the fire? In other words, how hot did it get is often a question that I have uh, about a particular part. And we can tell that based on the uh, hardness, uh, the mechanical properties and the microstructure, for example, when we're done to see how, if it's where it was when it started and how it's been changed by the fire, for example, perhaps. So do you ever get in, do you ever get involved in creating um, visuals or explanations that would help make a case uh, either described to, I don't know, the insured uh, or a jury, for instance? Oh, definitely. Definitely. What we do, what we do is very visual. Um, so I've had, I've had many cases in trial and we've made some pretty spectacular graphics to show the jury to be able to help them understand the technic technical part of, of the material behavior. In other words, because what we do is uh, even the, micros the microscopic work is documented with images and some of them can be uh, very colorful and graphic, um, which can really help a jury understand what the, what the uh, circumstances of the failure were. Okay. So I, I'm thinking of one thing, it's in the back of my mind. Often when I talk to folks like you that are in a supporting role to an investigation or part of a team, they have things that they wish they could communicate to fire investigators. So this is your chance. I was thinking, uh, you know, I wish I could have told them this. I wish they would have done this. Do you have any messages you'd like to pass on? Um, not really. I, th I think I'm pretty, uh, pretty clear with what I think I need to do. So if I have a, an artifact, I ask questions if I need to know about what, what that artifact was, was how it was handled in other words, and, and taken out of the fire scene, you know, to make sure that whatever I'm seeing is a real evidence and not an artifact of the extraction from the fire scene. Um, and certainly most of the, most of the, of the investigators that I work with know that when they come to me, I'm going to ask questions. And so they're prepared and they've got those already kind of at the tip of their tongue when we start. That's really Great to hear. Um, I, I'm thinking now maybe you could give us some examples uh, for 
some of the people in the audience who might not be as aware of what you do. Um, some examples of, of your casework. Most, most of the cases that I work, the parts that I work with are very simple. I can, uh, for example, I'll get a, a, the wiring, electrical wiring from a building going now. The investigator is maybe using something like arc mapping, trying to, to define the origin area. And he wants to know what we've got, how much of this is melting from the fire and how much of it could be electrical. So by doing the metallurgical evaluation, I can determine that quite conclusively because uh, the, the, uh, the physical morphology and the microstructure of the metal of the electrical conductors will be very different if it's electrical arcing versus uh, ambient temperature uh, effect. Um, there may be components that are otherwise damaged, not related to the fire, and they, they'll, an investigator will want to know about that. So, for example, um, years ago, I did a number of, of uh, investigations or assisted with a number of investigations where overhead radiant heaters installed in open spaces like warehouses or fire stations where the, the, uh, there's a big tube in the ceiling. I don't know if any, anybody that's listening knows what that is, but, but basically you've got a fire at one end and it heats up the tube and the tube then radiates the heat out into the open space. And those were very popular and are still popular, I think. Um, but there were a number of failures uh, number several years ago that were related to uh, fractures of the incoming gas line where the gas line comes in to feed the burner on the end of the tube. And by looking at the fractures, I could tell right away that those were fatigue failures. In other words, they were caused by the, the growth and the shrinking of the radiant heating tube that put a bend on the, on the uh, gas line, a multiple bends until it had fractured. And then that, of course, released gas into the ambient space. And when you've got a, a burner right there, uh, once you have the, um, the right amount of gas in the air, uh, it doesn't take long to have a big boom. Yeah. Well, glad you figured out what it was and hope that it uh, avoided a couple of the situations in the future. I'm sure there's a lot of things that you do where you are able to prevent future events. I hope so. That's that's the whole point of this uh, this job. I think they the rules have changed about those heaters, and they've changed the codes. I think for the most part uh, to change the way that the gas line comes into the burner, and so it doesn't it isn't uh, bent uh, at a highly focused area. In fact, one of my, one of the fire fire investigators that I worked with was very active in the in the community, in the uh, regulation community, called me up and wanted to know more about what we'd seen and take some of my photographs that he could take to the uh, code uh, group and to, so that they could change the rules for the heaters. Hmm. Yeah, I, well, I'm glad to know you were there um, because that sound that does sound like a scary situation. Any others uh, that are, even, even some things that are basic, I, I can imagine that there's times when you've, gotten something as simple as an outlet 
Exactly. So the simplest one I've ever done is an investigator came to me and wanted to know, wanted to make sure of what was on the uh, polarized outlet on which was the uh, hot side and which was the new, the uh, neutral side. And if, if you've worked with Nowlet before, you know that where the wires come in and they're attached, that one of the two nut, the two screws to hold the wires to the outlet is brass and the other one is a silver finish. So we were able to analyze the two screws in the scanning electron microscope using something called energy dispersive X-ray spectroscopy and verified that one of them had a coating which was the uh, hot was hot side and it, it let, let it lay out the wiring and, and, and they were able to solve the, the mystery then and trace the fire back to a uh, uh, stain rags that were in the area. Mm. And it wasn't, it wasn't a failure of the outlet at all, but it was, uh, it was a victim. The damage to the outlet was a victim of the fire. So I'm guessing that the rags were left out to dry. I assume so. I don't, I don't, <laughs> okay. Well, you started it. You said, I'm going to give uh, the easiest one I did. So you want to talk about the hardest? <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you about the more, most complicated one. Okay. Which was an area where we had the, uh, laid out the entire, uh, underground heating system from, a a driveway that, that had uh, snow melt on it. So that was the case where we had rebuilt the entire system down on my farm in Iowa inside a, a Quonset hut, if you know what that is. Yeah. Wow. So, cause we did, we couldn't put it in the barn. Obviously we didn't want to burn the barn down, but, um, but that was a tough one. Uh, yeah. So you're talking about one of these radiant driveway heating systems. Correct. Wow. An extensive one. So there was, uh, you know, many, many feet of cable under the underground. I, it's funny. So, I, I always thought that there was fluid running through those. Um, oh, I think that's one style, but this happens to be the electrical resistance uh, uh, heating system. So what did you find out? Well, we found out that the, the heating system worked. It seemed to work okay. So we don't think that it was the cause of the, the failure. So it had to do with the way that the, uh, uh, the way the owners were operating it. Wow. So you mean to tell me they actually took up the heating system from underneath the driveway so that you could move it to another location to test it? Yes. <laughs> I, I've heard big... of hard digs, but that sounds uh, pretty brutal. It was a big job. It was a big, it was a big job. And a, and a gentle job. I, I would think <laughs> a lot of work that you have to do carefully. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, any, any other idea of, or any other uh, examples that you care to share? Well, the other one that I really like is the uh, work that we did on the cruise control for Ford trucks years ago. There was a problem with the speed control deactivation switches that were causing fires. And... So we did the metallurgical evaluation of those, and that was fun because I actually got to testify in that case uh, eventually. 
but the uh, they were pretty dangerous because they could start fires when the truck wasn't running. So if, if the owner put the truck in their garage, left in the garage and went to bed, they could start a fire overnight. And it was, so it was a very dangerous situation. What was actually happening? What was happening was that the, uh, the way that the switch was sealed off from the brake fluid, because what this is, was the, it was the uh, switch that shut down the cruise control when you touched the brakes. So it, it reacted to the pressure in the brake system and the brake fluid. And they used a Kapton seal to keep the brake fluid away from the electrical part of the switch. But the Kapton eventually broke down because the, it had to survive the full pressure of the brake pedal. But it also had to react to a very, very small amount of pressure on the brake pedal to turn off. So that hmm. the uh, bottom line is that this is the Kapton seal that was in the switch uh, body itself would crack and leaked brake fluid, which happens to be flammable into the electrical components. And it caused a short between the, the positive and the negative uh, inside the switch. And that started, it started the uh, uh, brake fluid on fire. This switch is mounted on the master cylinder. So that's where there's a lot of fluid. There's a lot of uh, oil on the engine in that area. So it's tended to be a pretty big fire. I'm thinking somebody had to do a real good job or there had to be a repeated failure. I mean, what, what tipped you off or what tipped off the investigators? Well, I, before I got involved, the uh, a number of investigators that looked at these had done the location of the fracture or, or fracture origin, the failure origin, the fire origin to the area of the master cylinder. So, and of course, after the fire, you know, the master cylinder is, is melted and collapsed and the switches a lot of times ended up on the ground, but different investigators were smart enough to realize that there was an electrical uh, electrical potential within that switch that was always on. Mm, okay. And so they, um, I think, I think someone probably looked at it and went, Hey, this, this, this switch, these switch components don't look right. Something else is happening here. There's, this is uh charred brake fluid or melted plastic, something in that area. And, so that's when they brought them in to me and said, what can you see here? And what we could see was that there was a very high temperature for the switch component, the metallic switch components. And actually uh, some of them actually had arcing between the, uh, uh, between the uh, contacts of this, of the switch. That's really interesting. I, I'm, I'm often amazed at the level of detail and the intelligence, uh, you know, the thought process that goes through to find something like that when you're dealing with, in many cases, this massive hunk of char. You know? Oh, it's right, right. <laughs> if you think about it, if you think about a car, you know, the, to find this little thing that'll fit in your hand, the palm of your hand, out of all of the mess that's uh, around on the on the car. Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, it's you know I see a lot of a lot of classes, and I've been to a few of them for uh, vehicle uh, fire investigations, and it still amazes me after I sit there and look at what they're doing, and I'm just like, man, you got to be a dedicated person to want to dig in there. It's that's uh, right. <laughs> no, that's very true. And f- fortunately for me, I'm not the guy that's out there digging 99 of the time. I wait. Yeah. I wait till those those people. Those investigators are out there that they've found what they think are the key parts and they bring them back to me. And all I do is maybe sort out a few of the key parts and say, well, it could be this one or it could be this one or it's none of these. You know, you just made me think of we've done a lot of things about uh, spoliation. And and I was thinking about, you know, oh, he's the lucky guy who gets the silver can (laughs) that that after all that digging. But what's the biggest piece of evidence that you ever had to work on? Oh man, I think I think the biggest thing that I ever had to work on was a uh, a mineral terminal on Lake Michigan. What did they a stacker reclaimer? I think they called it. Okay, I can't remember, but it was, you know, it was huge. Like for taconite, that kind of. Yeah, this was actually at the, at the steel mill. So okay. yeah, they they did they scooped up. I think they probably did scoop up taconite with it, but they also scooped up whatever the. Uh, the Coke and whatever they would use in the steel mill. But, so how big was this thing? Was this like a shovel? You know, no, I'm trying to remember the shovel on the end was big enough to fill up a truck, a semi truck. And that was the shovel on the end. And I don't, I'm trying to remember now. I don't remember the size of it, but it was. Well, that's big enough. Yeah. No, build the back it, of a truck. <laughs> right. And we had to, you had to actually climb a ladder or use an elevator to get up to where we, where we could go to, to look at the evidence. Wow. As far as, uh, you know, communicating some other things to fire investigators, how, how do they know? And you, you sound pretty confident in the investigators you work with, but, but maybe there's some other folks out there around the globe that haven't worked with you that aren't, uh, you know, that aren't as aware. Um, how does the fire investigator know if a case needs a metallurgical or a materials analysis? Well, I think, I think that a good fire investigator will put a team together initially this, and look at the big scene and see what, where he think it's, thinks it's going to go. But I think the reality is what it boils down to is that if the investigator is looking at a piece that he thinks is important to the investigation, and he doesn't understand what happened to it. That's when we can get come in and try to help him to understand what the history is, the act, the uh, history of that part might be. But I think, like you said, I think that most of the investigators are aware before the investigation is over, or at some point, they know what's important. And all they have to do is realize what they understand and what they don't understand about the important artifacts. And if it's if the, it appears to be a materials issue, that's that's where I can get involved. All right. So, give me some tips for fire investigators how they can take advantage of what material analysis provides. Well, I think the one thing that we can uh, can provide that almost all structure fires get involved with is knowing what's the difference between the fire melting and arc melting. So we can do that. 
They can look at what the source of the fire is. If it's a gas, if it's a gas related fire, uh, where's the leak? You know, what, what component has the leak and what has caused the leak? And we, cause we can look at that and try to figure that out. Okay. And what should fire investigators do to build up their awareness of what your capabilities are? Well, I think, I think, you know, listening to this podcast is probably one thing that shows that they're on the right track, but, you know, going to conferences, um, the IAAI international training conferences are, um, are good to learn about the techniques, about the different sciences that are involved in fire. Anything else I'm missing? Um, there's, I just feel like there must be a myriad of, of cases that are out there, but I know sometimes you can and cannot get into the details of those. And, uh, but anything I'm missing that you'd like to get across? And, and I have one other question, but I, I'd rather hear what you're thinking first, if anything. No, I think, uh, I think we've pretty much covered it because you're right. What you have to do is, is um, you know, just talk to your colleagues and ask them who they use and how they, how they would recommend. Because it's important that you put that team together early on because a lot of the stuff that we do can be really messed up if it's not handled correctly during the, uh, during the breakdown. Um, so that's important to get us involved in a timely manner. Um, but otherwise, you know, collect the evidence, collect it right, and find someone that you like to work with. All right. I uh, was reading the, the paper this morning, well, the paper on my phone, and uh, I saw that they're starting to do an investigation on the ship fire that happened in Newark, uh, at the Newark port in New Jersey. Yeah. And I thought of you, and I thought, man, if there's a place with a lot of metal, <laughs> right <laughs> and a lot of fire uh unfortunately that was uh you know we had two fatalities there but uh any thoughts you want to share or what did you think of when you when you saw that from a from your perspective well i haven't seen enough of the details to really know what's going on i do know i do know someone that's that's been out there so i'll i guess i'll find out sooner or later what uh you know what the key issues are um but, the, you know, something that size, those are really tough to sort out and get the, get down to the, you know, get down to that screw or that wire or whatever it needs to get into the laboratory to be looked at. Yeah. I mean, thinking about, you know, that starts to make the, uh, the cruise control switch look a little bit more simple, but, right, uh, right. <laughs> so Larry, any other examples of some of the work that you've done? I think the one thing that we didn't cover that I've done a lot of is uh, corrugated stainless steel tubing as a gas supply mechanism. And the CSST tubing is fantastic because it uh, obviously it can be installed quickly and it's much safer in areas that have earthquakes and whatnot. But it, it, there is a problem with it here in the Midwest that hasn't been solved as far as I know. And that's that uh, lightning in the area can perforate the tubing and cause gas leaks. So we can, uh, we can take a look at the tubing out of a fire and 
you know, do pressure tests and verify the location of the of a of a leak and separate the leaks that have been caused by the fire from leaks that were pre-existing the fire, which had probably been caused by lightning. This is very interesting to me. So how? <laughs> I mean, one, I guess, is from, you can see from melting and, well, I'm asking you. So Right. Well, the, uh, yeah, the, the holes can actually look very similar. And I've spent, I don't know how much time, I don't want to think about how much time I've spent in laboratories where we've had, you know, 40 feet of CSST with 100 holes in it going through and looking and saying, okay, there, there, that one's fire. That one's fire. That one's fire. Oh, there, what's that one. But basically what we've got uh, is that the holes that have been resulting from the fire in the stainless steel have been caused by corrosion in general. And those have very jagged kind of uh, undercut material loss that has perforated the tubing but the uh, lightning and electrical activity that has caused holes in the CSST have very rounded edges. And that they're very, very characteristic uh, in terms of their morphology versus the, the corrosion or mechanical damage. Wow. So, <laughs> I don't know, this is just one of these crazy things where I've got a smart engineer on the phone and I, and I want to ask him a question um, and it relates to lightning. I mean, I, I remember my mother telling me, you know, you got to close the windows on both sides of the room and you don't want to be in drafty areas and, and lightning can be huge. And then recently I just heard most lightning is, I don't know, something like a quarter inch wide. Um, any thoughts on this? Just because I, I find it interesting. I've seen some of the results in different fire investigation fire investigation evidence that I've uh, seen as photographs. And I was like, wow, that doesn't really look like much. And then I look at a tree and I go like, oh, wow. You know, it looks right. like it was, <laughs> what are your thoughts? Well, I think the lightning and as far as the CST goes, can be in areas that are remote from the house. You know, there could be a lightning strike can be in a tree that's out in the yard away from the house, but the electrical fields, from the lightning can be so varied that they can cause damage um, a long way away from where they've hit. So even because the light, even though the lightning bolt itself is only small, the field that is generated from the lightning is can be huge. Hmm. Wow. So so it can gets in to the system, gets into the electrical system of the building, and in this case, it gets into the uh, into the gas lines and propagates through the gas lines until it can be transferred to uh, ground, another ground. And it's, it's that point where it, it, it goes from one material to another that it can cause the melting and the perforation of the tubing. Hmm. You know, I, I thought that type of tubing was discontinued. Am I... Am I mistaken, or did they just upgrade the way it's made? Or I think there has been an upgrade. It, okay. I, I don't follow this stuff uh, closely, and I haven't worked on a CSST failure for a couple of years. So. I just remember when I, God, 
a long time ago putting in a stove trying to find <laughs> this stuff and they're like oh no they don't make that anymore like, okay <laughs> all right well again i appreciate your time and uh anything else i'm missing nope i think we got it all right i'll say goodbye this time larry and i appreciate again uh your contribution to us here at cfi trainer my pleasure glad to do it all right you be well you too rod bye bye This podcast and CFITrainer.net are made possible by funding from a fire prevention and safety grant from the Assistance to Firefighters Grant Program administered by FEMA and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security with support from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives and voluntary online donations from CFITrainer.net users and podcast listeners. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Stay safe out there. We'll see you next month. For the IWI and CFITrainer.net, I'm Rod Ammon.